You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, as Max was saying, February is Black History Month, and usually during that time. It's also the beginning of Lent, and we talk about Lent this month, but Lent doesn't begin for another couple of weeks. So I wanted to take today to talk about um, a topic that relates to Black History Month. Uh, I want to talk today about what's called Black Liberation Theology, which is a topic we probably talk about at least once a year here, um, especially at this time of year, because it's such an important topic and um, one that I think we need to keep at the forefront of our thinking. Black liberation theology is a branch, you could say, on the tree, the greater tree of what's called liberation theology, which might be a term you're unfamiliar with. Um, But it's that tree, you might say, that movement, that school of thought within Christianity, liberation theology has been a big big influence on this church and on me personally, the leadership here, and other similar progressive Christian communities, um, specifically even here in Los Angeles, All Saints Church in Pasadena, I think has been deeply influenced by liberation theology. Um, A lot of progressive Christian communities have been. It's why we talk about the gospel being about social justice, primarily. that's one, I mean, that's one of the big influences of liberation theology, this idea that the gospel is really not about getting, to go, getting into heaven when you die. It's not really about the afterlife. The gospel, as Jesus proclaimed it, was really about the kingdom of God here on earth, a new way of living and being here on earth where we live out of God's or Christ's virtues of justice and peacemaking and preferential treatment of the poor, solidarity with the poor and the powerless liberating the oppressed. That, we believe, is the heart of the gospel. And that is the heart of this movement called liberation theology. It helps to understand what that is first before we get into black liberation theology, which again is more of a a branch on the tree of liberation theology. Um, There's other branches. There's queer, queer liberation theology, feminist liberation theology, Latin American liberation theology, which is actually where the term liberation theology originates from in the 1960s. And again, the, the, we'll get into the history of that in a minute, but the, the core concept in whatever liberation theology we're talking about is really the same. It's about Jesus's preference, preferential treatment with the poor and the powerless, and his condemnation of the rich and the powerful for the way they exploit the poor and the powerless, oppress. So liberation theology primarily takes its cues from Jesus' teachings, but also from the Exodus story in the Old Testament, which is probably the most important story in the Bible, <laughs> the most integral foundational story in the Bible, even more than Jesus's, because Jesus's story, in order to truly understand Jesus and his story, you must understand and appreciate the Exodus story, because Jesus of Nazareth is very much an archetype 
functions as an archetype in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, he, he, he's an archetype of Moses, an archetype or an embodiment of the Exodus story, the story of God liberating an oppressed people, namely the, the Hebrews, from an evil and unjust empire, the Egyptians. That story, the Exodus story, informs I don't know how many other stories in the Bible, specifically, of course, Jesus' story. So you have to understand that when we talk about liberation theology, any liberation theology within Christianity, it's not just about Jesus and his proclamation and his mission, but it is, it is also primarily about the Exodus story. We can go uh, more into that later, how Jesus functions as an archetype for Moses or an archetype of the Exodus story, if, if you want to talk more about that later. So that's, that's the theological roots of the movement, but the term liberation theology comes from Latin America in the 1960s, primarily from the Catholic parishes there, the Catholic priests who became activists in the 1960s on behalf of the poor and indigenous populations in places like Peru, Brazil, Uruguay, El Salvador, Central America. Central and South America, you had these Catholic parishes, these priests, um, that took up the cause of the poor indigenous population that were being exploited and oppressed primarily by white European landowners owned these plantations that essentially robbed the indigenous people of their ancestral lands and then paid them slave wages essentially to work the proper work those farms and so you had these these Catholic priests in these parishes in Latin America South America Central America who, who became deeply involved in the plight of the poor in the indigenous population there. And so th these Catholic priests, again, 1960s, began to focus on their cares and concerns. Um, and um, they began believing that the gospel called them to advocate for political and economic change on behalf, again, of the indigenous population, even helping them lead armed revolts. There are, in, there are instances where a Catholic priest at that time would lead mass and then immediately following mass, lock and load. I mean, he, he would load his gun and the rest of the congregation would load their rifles and they'd go assault some government office or uh, some, some rich white landowner or something like that. It was rare, but it happened. Um, this is interesting. Um, and a good example of how far it went, liberation theology. And it was heavily influenced, these Catholic priests were heavily influenced by Marxist um, and other non-capitalist ideologies. These priests who led the movement believed that socialism and Marxism more uh, closely aligned with the teachings of Christ rather than capitalism and laissez-faire economics that led to the cruel exploitation of the indigenous population of Latin America. And even though the, the term liberation theology originated in the 1960s um, in Latin America, the ideas behind it, namely this, this idea that the gospel is primarily social in nature, that idea has existed in the church, I mean, since its inception, to be very clear, especially within the, especially within the American church of the 19th century. A lot of people don't know this. The, the American church in the, of the 19th century, so we're talking the 1800s here, right? 
was defined in large part by what was called the social gospel, which was quite different than <laughs> what defines the American church in large part today, right? Um, and the social gospel of the American church of the 19th century can be understood as an early iteration of liberation theology. The social gospel movement of the, of the 19th and early 20th century, again, here in, in the States, was mostly about addressing the practical needs of the poor in America's burgeoning new inner city populations. The social gospel was about meeting their practical needs and caring about their practical concerns. It's interesting for a few reasons, not the least of which is that modern evangelicalism, I don't know if you've noticed lately, but modern evangelicals tend to call anybody like us who focuses on this social gospel today as, you know, woke Christianity, <laughs> progressive Christianity, you know, social justice Christianity, they use these terms derisively, right? It's pejoratives. Ignoring or be complete, they're being completely ignorant of the fact that, again, for the American church of the 19th century was largely informed by this thing called the social gospel. This is not new. You know, American evangelicals today believe that the reason why churches like us talk about the gospel you know, as being a social gospel, they, they believe it's because of left-wing politics has infiltrated the church, critical race theory, Marxism, socialism, that this is this all new, and we're just reactionary, you know, and just left-wing politics, newfangled left-wing politics. No, this has been in the church, well, it's been in the church forever, this, this focus but specifically in the United States since the 19th century. Evangelicals tend not to be really good with their history um, on a lot of levels, but that's certainly one of them. There's nothing new, in other words, about this idea that the gospel is really about love and justice and mercy and compassion and our solidarity and God's solidarity with the poor and the powerless and the oppressed and, and this idea of seeking their liberation, seeking their relief. There's nothing new about that. Nothing Marxist or what we might say progressive New Age. No, it's nothing new about it. So that's important to keep in mind. And in many ways, liberation theology in the 1960s in Latin America inherited these, these ideas. All right, so. That was important for me to just to set up our conversation today about black liberation theology. It's important to understand its roots because black liberation theology, again, is a branch on this larger tree of liberation theology. In the 1960s, black liberation theology took off, you might say, or, or began here in the United States, primarily with the civil rights movement, right? That's what was going on here in the US, the black civil rights movement in the 1960s. And you had, of course, folks like Martin Luther King Jr., but then you also had a, a man by the name of James Cone, Dr. James Cone, who was really the one who coined this term, black liberation theology. He was a black activist, a scholar, philosopher, theologian, a seminary professor, and a, and a friend of Dr. King's. And so Dr. James Cone coined this term black liberation theology, wrote some books about it, he died actually only recently, in 2018. He was around a long time, and his legacy certainly lives on. 
Dr. Cohn defined black liberation theology as simply black people asserting their humanity and liberation from white supremacy. That's a simple way of putting it. He once wrote this. Either God is identified with the oppressed to the point that their experience becomes God's own experience, or God is a God of racism. The blackness of God, he goes on as my mic cuts out, um, the blackness of God means that God has made the oppressed condition God's own condition. This is the essence of the biblical revelation. By electing Israelite slaves in Egypt as the people of God and by becoming the oppressed one in Jesus of Nazareth, the human race is made to understand that God is known wherever human beings experience humiliation and suffering. Liberation is not an afterthought, but the very essence of divine activity in the world, end quote. That was Cohen. And that's the essence of black liberation theology. But to really understand it, one must understand that Dr. Cohn believed that this was the gospel in 20th century America. This was, this was it. Period. In other words, because Jesus came to liberate the oppressed, and because the oppressed in America has historically been people of color, brown and black bodies. Therefore, black liberation theology is, is the gospel in the United States of America today. Period. Full stop. That's, that's how he understood it. It wasn't just this afterthought or a caveat of the gospel. No, black liberation theology for Dr. Cohn and many others is and was, was and is the gospel here in the United States. In Latin America, it was liberation theology. That was the gospel in Uruguay, Brazil, Peru. Here in the U.S., it's black liberation theology, according to Cohn. So in other words, the gospel for him was not, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins, so we get to go to heaven when we die. You understand that? which is, of course, the gospel many of us were raised with. That's the gospel I grew up hearing every Sunday. The gospel was that Jesus came to earth to die on the cross for my sins, so I get to go to heaven when I die. Glory, glory, hallelujah. That was the gospel in the church I was raised in. According to Cohn, that's not only not the gospel, but that is actually a gospel that feeds into and supports white supremacy. To be clear, Dr. Cohn wasn't denying the existence of the afterlife or that Christianity has something to do with it. He admitted that. He just denied that it was what the gospel was really about. And so for Cohn, the difference between a gospel of white supremacy and a gospel of black liberation came down to a major difference in focus. A gospel of white supremacy was focused on the afterlife and the sweet by and by and the mansions and glory forevermore and you know, the supernatural. The gospel of white supremacy was focused on the world to come, 
Again, treasures in heaven. <laughs> wasn't focused on this life, certainly. Wasn't focused on this world any more than past personal piety that would get you into heaven. Whereas a gospel of black liberation was focused on, on this life and this world and bringing liberation and peace and justice into this life and this world for the oppressed. Dr. Cohn believed that, the, that this otherworldly focus of the white church, its preoccupation with the afterlife, its preoccupation with personal piety, meaning going to church and reading your Bible and praying and doing devotions and, you know, your, your personal relationship with God. Have you heard that language before? It's all about you and, and your heart and your personal relationship with God. That's a personal piety. That gospel was antithetical to the gospel of black liberation, which was the true gospel. That otherworldly focus of the white church, its preoccupation with the afterlife and personal salvation, Dr. Cohn believed was largely rooted in racism and white America's need to preserve their power by avoiding a direct encounter with the true gospel and texts like James chapter 5. And I'll end with this text today and open it up for conversation. Come now, you rich people. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts on a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the one who does not resist you. That's liberation theology. And that's black liberation theology in the text and in the tradition. All right, so there's my talk for today, and per usual, we like to open it up for dialogue or conversation. If anybody has any questions about any of that, um, specifically relating to liberation theology, black liberation theology, um, or how Jesus uh, might have embodied it, like I talked about that archetype of Moses in the Exodus tradition, we could talk about that too. Anybody have any questions or comments about this? Is this the first time you've heard this this message before in church? I certainly didn't grow up hearing it. Yeah, it's Beth, right? There you are. Thank you. You have murdered the ones that have not resisted you. Yeah sit with that for a minute yeah it's a powerful text right now i'm reading how the word is passed it's a book about uh slavery abolition the history of it and the man 
goes around the country and visits prisons that are really plantations that are even at this time today, farms, and they need as many laborers for their field as possible. And it's you know, 90, 92% African-American male on these prison yards and which are their fields and they're actually picking cotton. And then he goes to plantations, uh, three of them that are historic, uh, owned by you know the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and visits the museums and listens and critiques and has conversations with the people who are docents, white and black, and how they are uh, trying to educate uh, in the South. It's very interesting, you know, you have murdered those who have not resisted you. I think it still goes on. Yeah, well said. Thank you for that perspective. We often don't think about how, you know, poverty kills people and how the system, the way it's set up, leads to the early death of many on the margins like that. Yeah, that's that's a good perspective to keep in mind. Other thoughts, reflections, questions. Yeah, Emily. Um, it's just like a an observation. Um during twenty twenty, after June twenty twenty, a lot of things came up i think for a lot of people you mean you mean january 2020 or june, you said june. june 2020 after george floyd okay got yeah it. yeah got it um i think it brought up things that one people had never had to think about but then when they did have to think about it they still used the thinking from before rather than using it as like a maybe I don't know everything or maybe the way that I have thought about it isn't right um and just things like people think thinking George Floyd's death was justified because he had commit whether he did or didn't commit a crime at the time that he was being arrested doesn't matter but the fact that some people think that that's justification is weird to me um, I've had conversations with family members about the diet of certain ethnicities and how do they choose that? Do they go, okay, we're, it, there's just, I don't think people understand all the little folds and creases and that hat that goes into what racism is today. And it it's arrogant for us to think that we have the answers when it's not us. You know, I mean, I'm talking about my family because of my family is obviously white. So they, mm -hmm. you don't have that answer for other people. So you should be listening with open ears yeah. rather than just standing firm on something you're wrong about, honestly. Yeah. It's just interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, and, and you're right to point out how complicated and, you know, you've, we've all, we're all familiar with how wealth is passed down generation to generation. Well, poverty is passed down generation to generation. You know, 
community to community, not just individual family, individual family, entire communities. You know, how generational trauma uh, is absolutely passed down generation to generation and keeps entire communities locked in oppressive, murderous circumstances, really. That's... Oh, right, yeah, yeah, that's that's how it's often spun, but yeah, white voices. Yes, Dorian. One of the reasons I appreciate this space is because it offers a theistic or even social perspective, you know, that uh, obviously that's not it's the, niche. To hold the mic degree. a little higher. Hold the mic up, um, thanks. Yeah, the perspective is, is niche, right, uh, to a certain to a certain degree and i say that because being a person of color myself it's always the the duality of coming to a white centric church or like a white you know predominantly white congregation right who's speaking about liberation theology and then i go to like family members or friends who are people of color right and they're essentially you know where you talk about the white supremacy you know theology that's what essentially what their faith is based on and it's just it's it's not weird it's just it's a it's an interesting place to be in to hear this theology from a predominantly white community right and then go back to people of color who are so invested in this you know this you know well once i get my pie in the sky kind of you know you know, you know, I'm I'm investing all my hope on, you know, on Jesus, and you know, and and again, there's different factors that that go into play there in terms of hope and all that stuff, and and you know, your 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 environment and everything like that. But it's just that's something that's hard for me to. It's it's not for me to understand necessarily. It's just it's it's just some it's something like when I go back to my families. You know, and and they're like, yeah, like, you know, racism and the injustice of like, you know, of like of like Latinos and stuff like that, right? But then they won't ad advocate for like other people's injustice. Hmm. I mean, they they won't advocate advocate against other people's injustice, right? It's 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 it, it's it's frustrating because it's like, yeah, man, like you know open up a bit right like see don't just look at the stuff that's happening to you look at the stuff that's happening to other people right and it's i think sometimes it, it's it's hard because like i said coming here listening to this and then going back to like my family and stuff like that it's, it's like it, it it is a bit of a sorry it's a bit of a mind fuck sometimes uh, say that again it's a bit of a what i, I probably shouldn't say that again but uh, <laughs> oh got it got it so say that again say that again. we didn't hear it on the recording <laughs> But no, I hear. Yeah, it, it's 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 just comment. It's just a comment that I had. Yeah. yeah, I just want to share that. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that perspective. Any thoughts? Yeah, Rodney. Would you mind? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I'll see if I can articulate what's going on in my head. This is just a really good message and very thought provoking. Um, and I think, so the foundation of the gospel in my mind is 
Jesus came to save us so that we go to heaven when we die. If you stop there, that's the simplest form of it. And I feel like white supremacy is so pervasive that we don't realize that it's root, that belief in the gospel is rooted in white supremacy. And I'm just taking it back to like, think of the slave owner back in slave times. If he thinks salvation means he's saved and he's going to heaven when he dies and stops there, then it doesn't matter how he lives his daily life. It doesn't matter that he is enslaved other humans. It doesn't matter that he's sleeping with some of them, cheating on his wife. None of that matters because the foundation of his belief is I'm saved, so I'm going to heaven when I die. It takes a certain level of maturity and evolution in your faith to move beyond that simple belief of salvation and put it in a place of, okay, I'm saved, so I'm going to heaven, but what does salvation mean for how I live my daily life and how I treat my fellow human beings? And I think a lot of evangelical Christians and Christians in general stop at that simple belief that it's just about going to heaven when I die and don't think about what it means in the here and now in my daily life. Uh, so I guess my point is it, it takes that maturity and that evolution in your faith to get to that point of, it's not just about going to heaven, but it's also about how I treat my fellow neighbor, how I love my neighbor, how I treat the downtrodden, the oppressed, and get to that belief of what salvation means. No, I, yeah, that's right. And that's good. Um, and I think I hear you saying, and I think it's an important point, that just because one believes in the afterlife or that Christianity has something to do with it, it's not mutually exclusive. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you don't also believe that it's about, you know, uh, caring for the poor or fighting for justice or or, or being, an, being an advocate for the poor and the powerless in this right. life and, and that being part of the faith as well. Hey, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, it's, it's easy to, you know, <clears throat> I guess be too, uh, you know, dualistic or something like that. It's got to be one or the other. Right. And most Christians yeah. in, you know, I, I think, I mean, there's a lot, I don't know about most, but there's always been that, that thinking that you're talking about. Um, Dr. Cohn <laughs> uh, would, is certainly critical of the otherworldly version of Christianity that often gets in the way of a, the this worldly form of Christianity. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but he would never go into even a black church and say, you all need to stop believing in the sweet by and by. He would never do that, especially to an oppressed community whereby the only measure of hope they could possibly have is that ultimately the sufferings of this life will end. Yep. The oppressions of this life will end and they'll be granted freedom and liberation and, and relief in the yep. next life. Can, you know, it was absolutely, when you read the New Testament, I mean, it was largely written for people on the margins, people that were struggling to survive, right. people who were facing all kinds of existential threats. And the hope that they had was that ultimately the powers of this life and this world don't have the final say and that they will be liberated in this li next life, at least, and be given, you know, relief in the world come. That was always a source of hope for the oppressed. So, yeah, I mean, we have, like so many things in life, you know, it's not so... I think it's an important nuance to carry. Um, yeah, do you have any other thoughts about that? Or 
no just you're just you're just nodding yes no I, it, well it does make me want like i wonder like if we were to sit down a fundamentalist christian today and say okay you're saved you're going to heaven but what does your salvation mean for how you treat your fellow man i wonder what their response would yeah. be you know what i mean like how do you feel about the poor and the indigenous and the oppressed people like in the here and now yeah. it just makes me curious yeah and um, yeah diana i mean oh i was just going to speak to that that i think there's still so much fear so it's easy to just focus on myself and my salvation and i think that it there's still a lot of fear within the white community of well what happens if i do actually help people of color <laughs> rise up and what if the tables turn? What does that look like? Oh my gosh, what if I lose my place in the world? It's like this weird scarcity mentality right. that that things could change and that that wouldn't look like, you know, an equal playing field. It's, I don't know. I get very confused by that mentality, but I it. it Fully exists and I think it exists a lot in the white evangelical world and I think they don't know that that's how they feel either like consciously I don't know that yeah. yeah but like also piggybacking on what you're saying like this is literally what I'm talking about every single time when I'm saying there's an irresponsibility a Christian irresponsibility when you just go I'm saved I'm done like your salvation should be an action in everything that you do in the world right like it should it shouldn't just be you're saved that's the one action and then that equals salvation it should mean you have saved yourself and that then means that every action you do should also equal your salvation yeah real quick off of this um i agree with all that and i think like it makes me think of the phrase spiritual bypassing which is also like a very white thing to do of just like I think it's what you're saying. And I think it's also like how many people go to church and just don't want it to be complicated. They don't want it to be hard. They don't want it. They don't like, they're going to like, just want to feel the spirit. And like, there's nothing wrong. Like, that's fine. Like that's a component. We all love to feel the spirit. Um, all good. Um, speaking specifically of white people feeling the spirit. <laughs> um, um, but I just think that spiritual bypassing of like just not wanting church to be a place where they're challenged and wanting it to be like, listen, my week in their minds, which, you know, feel like their week could be really hard. They have a hard, you know, they're stressed out about kids and whatever. Like they want to go on a Sunday and like relax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody likes to go to church and be made to feel uncomfortable. You know, depends. Maybe in this church you do, but yeah. Uh, no, good, good point. Great point. Um, somebody else had a hand up. Uh, Beth, you had, yeah. Would you mind passing the mic? Thank you. I already spoke, so I'll try to be brief, but I also agree with everyone. Uh, and maybe uh, what simply came to my mind as you finished your comments, is it Roger, Rodney, is the evolution from saved to saving. I mean, God is saving it's the today and tomorrow and what like you were saying that what actions will be future pointed we are continuously being saved this moment and now this moment 
we were changing each other with every breath and to move out of that stagnation past saved once and for all now i'm good i don't doesn't matter what i do right no it, it so does and jesus said the kingdom i'll use reverend dr martin luther king's kingdom is at hand that's always now always saving always now yeah that's good thanks beth yeah, Marcia, did you want to say? Yeah. It occurs to me that part of church is that you are tribal. Every church sort of welcomes their own members. And though some churches are more open to new members, they're opened if you'll convert to their their way. And I'm wondering whether part of it is so unconscious that we could evolve beyond being tribal. And if we did, then churches would be, would be useful, but their doors would be to everyone. And now they really aren't to everyone. It's who lives near you or who looks like you or who thinks just like you. And so I think there's a lot within the structure of, of a church. Because I know that I used to, so naive, I thought that if you said you were Christian, everyone thought the same way. No, <laughs> no. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, the philosophy and Jesus was dealing, opening it to everyone he could see, and we've lost that. Yeah. Other thoughts today? Yes, yeah, Steve. Several conversations I've been in in the last few weeks have me thinking about an idea in my head I'm calling spiritual narcissism, which I see a lot in evangelicalism, but also just in western spirituality in general which is that idea of like it's about my salvation but even when it's not just about my salvation when when it is the like the things that affect my daily life it's about the things i'm doing about myself right so well i'm gonna live every day like i'm a saved christian which means i'm not gonna watch game of thrones or i'm not going to uh drink alcohol or i'm not it all centers around what I'm doing for myself. It's about, you know, my self-help, my bettering of myself and not the other people around me. The living every day like I'm saved becomes taking care of others, becomes getting out of myself and getting into the world and into the community is how I think is sort of the opposite of that. Um, but so much of all of Western or a lot of Western spirituality, whether it's especially evangelicalism, but also in a lot of other contexts that I see it is all about how do you get better? How do you feel better? How do you, how do you increase your own stuff? It's, it's all centered on the individual and the self, as opposed to the world and the community and how we can all, you know, help, help each other. No, that's good. I mean, Imagine how big of a world change would happen if American Christians went to the voting booth yeah. and voted not 
on their own self-interest, yep. but ask themselves, how can I vote in a way that benefits those in my community in yep. the United States on the margins? Yes. Look, even that small little it would make a huge difference. Yep. <laughs> huge difference. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking. We're not, we don't need to come up with like, I mean, we do maybe we need to come up with better programs and better ideas of how we can do things. But I mean, even just calling people to go into the voting booth and voting for the best interest of those on the margins. I've I've had a lot of political conversations recently with family members and even people who are who typically would vote on the same side that I vote, where they've said, Well, I don't know what I think about this politician because they're not really speaking to me or they're not really talking about how my life is going to get better. But what they're talking about is how other people's lives can get better who don't have as much as you or who aren't represented who in the way that like you are, you, who don't look like who you. Who don't and have so your bank account. And, yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. maybe it's not about you. Maybe it's about how we can help everybody else. Um, what a concept. It sounds yeah. like Jesus. Yes. I find my, the last thought is just that I, I find myself so much in years, in recent years, thinking this uh, this same mantra, which is we could, if we wanted to, we could. We could help everybody. We could feed the poor. We could house every. If we wanted to, we could. But it's so much about, yeah, how do we help ourselves and not that idea. So yeah, That's a great point, Steve. Thanks. Um, all right. Let's go with one more. Jason. Yeah, I'll just bring it down and make it depressing. This <laughs> Before we Wait, go, that's my job. Wait no, no, I'm I'm pretty good at it too. <laughs> I was just yeah. This whole conversation, I've been going through a lot of emotions. It started with like this is really depressing because um, it's so not the system that we're in, and the double speak of of Christianity now is so strong that it makes it it feels impossible to to even though this kind of christianity has been around since the beginning like i was looking for this quote there's this roman guy who was saying that like these christians are crazy they take care of the poor and they share their wealth and all this stuff like they're obviously not romans they're heretics or whatever like that concept has been around since the very beginning but it's like constantly not succeeding in changing the world it feels like and so i've been like it's been uh, weighing on me this conversation and then like just recently just a minute ago I've been getting angry about it um, it's everything that you guys have been saying like about uh, why things can't be the way that they are is like built into evangelical Christianity right like we should be our lives should be a reflection of Christ no because Faith is our, um, what is it? Grace, not works, whatever. You're saved through grace, not through what you do. Like they've got a Bible verse for everything to turn it all around and make it uh, back to, I don't have to do anything. I shouldn't do anything. What I do here is irrelevant. You know, they talk, they talk a good talk of Jesus was compassionate. Jesus had unconditional love. And at the same time, none of the other theology props that up and it just it just makes me angry so i just yeah. wanted to say no listen this is a place to vent it's it's a good vent yeah and there's a sense of powerlessness to it yeah all right 
Well, we uh, had a great conversation today. I love it when we hear from so many different voices. Um, thank you for participating. Conversation doesn't end, does it? It's not like, oh, we figured this out. Congratulations. Um, uh, but it's important to always have these in constant unfolding conversations and critical self-reflection about what we might be able to do differently as individuals and also as a community. But let's conclude our time together by saying this benediction. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you for being here, my friends. Um, take care out there today. Stay dry, I guess. But um, thank you for being here, including all of you who join us. Um, I don't know if all of you is the right term, the few of you <laughs> that join us via Zoom. Um, thank you for being here. And thank you to everybody that listens to this podcast. This is a podcast. Um, it's out on the interwebs. But thank you to everybody. Go in peace. Music